Hello there listener, hope you're an Android developer. Welcome to the context episode 29. This time we have another How It's Made episode where we have a special guest, Sakis Kaliakudas. Hi Sakis. Hey Hannes, how are you doing? I'm doing great, how are you doing? Yeah, yeah, not too bad, not too bad. Although it's a bit cloudy here in London. <laughs> what are you actually doing in London? Can you tell us a little bit more about yourself, the company you work for? Yeah, yeah, sure. So I started off as an Android engineer here at Babylon Health. And these days I'm an engineering manager for the, for the Android team here at Babylon Health. So uh, Babylon Health is a technology company operating on the healthcare space. And the mission, a very noble mission, Excuse me, a very noble mission, I would say, is to provide affordable and accessible healthcare to everyone on the planet uh, through the use of technology. So uh, we have a lot of products uh, related to healthcare, and uh, some of these include a lot of uh, artificial intelligence. Uh, so, for example, we have uh, uh, the chatbot product where you can do uh, a triage flow uh, with your Android or iOS app. Uh, and that means that you pass in some of your, the symptoms that you're experiencing, and then uh, you go through a conversation back and forth with the chatbot, and then you get some suggestions on how, uh, how critical it is for you to, for example, go to the doctor or to go to the A&E, the emergency in the hospital, or maybe you can do self-care at home. Uh, and then uh, we have overall many other products, like, for example, we do video consultations with a doctor. We do face-to-face -face, uh, appointments, booking the appointments through the app and having co consultations with your with a Babylon uh, doctor. We call them GPs here in, in the UK. Uh, you can get your uh, prescriptions delivered uh, at your local pharmacy or at home and uh, many other things. You can uh, use, you can order test kits to to get uh, your uh, your blood tested for vitamin deficiencies and things like that and see the, the report through the app. Uh, and more interesting projects. Uh, the list is quite big, actually. Oh, interesting. And is it all baked uh, into one app or do you have multiple apps for every kind of sub-product that you offer? No, no, everything is, uh, is inside one application. And then, and the same applies for the iOS team. And then we offer a subset of this functionality on web as well. Cool. What is your role in the company? So you said you're an engineering manager or you started as an Android developer and now became an engineering manager or have you already started as an engineering manager inside Babylon Health? No, no, I actually, I started as a, as a developer. Initially, I was very involved in building uh, the products. Then uh, after uh, a year or two, my, my interest moved more towards uh, the plumbing of the application, so the architecture, the tooling, uh, CI, and things like those. Uh, I spent a bit less than a year on that role, uh, looking after these things, along, of course, with the rest of the team. And then at that point, I got promoted into the, the engineering manager role, looking after the whole team, which at the, at the point that I got promoted was about uh, 12 or 13 engineers. And now we are 23, looking to be about 30 within within the next few months. Oh, wow. So you're the only engineering manager uh, at Babylon Health or are those 23 uh, developers split across multiple engineering managers? 
so initially I was the only one, but uh, as you understand, this does not scale and I cannot possibly <laughs> look after a 20 or 30 engineers by myself. Uh, so we introduced a middle layer of, of management so that uh, uh, we are basically following this uh, organizational model based on Spotify where we have uh, squads and tribes. I, I don't know if you're familiar with that. Um, yes, I am because we have something similar in our company, but for the listeners probably and who are not um, familiar with that model, would you mind explaining it a little bit more in detail what it means? Yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, so, so basically, initially in Babylon, we had the whole Android team sitting together and the whole iOS team sitting together, building out functionality. And then the backend was a bit separate as well. And you needed to, to make requests towards these teams to get something built. But uh, as the company grew from 150 or 200 people to the 1500 that it is today, uh, this model wasn't working that well. So the, the Spotify model is, essentially means that you split up uh, your teams into small cross-functional teams where uh, you have about, let's say, 10 people. So some Android engineers, some iOS, a designer, some product people, a delivery manager. So a very small self-contained team that can take decisions independently and can move faster. Uh, and we did that about nine months ago. So so these days we have uh, mobile engineers involved in, in about 12 squads, I believe. And there is there is more coming. So this this whole model has been working quite well for us. So we are we are expanding our our bet on it. Uh, so back to the original question. Uh, based on this model, apart from the squads, this these small cross-functional teams are called squads. So apart from the squads, you have something that we call a tribe, and a tribe is a collection of squads that work give or take on the same functionality. So when we were uh, debating about how to go about splitting the team, we decided to, to put engineering managers for each one of these tribes. And so far we have promoted one engineer to be the engineering manager for, for one tribe. And then we are now in the process of promoting some more and also hiring externally. Uh, so hopefully within, within the next two or three months, we'll have about five of these engineering managers where uh, uh, each one of these will be the line manager for uh, about five or six hundred engineers, mm-hmm. uh, and then I will be managing this uh, this tribe chapter leads is what we call them. This role is a kind of a mixed role where these these people they do fifty percent uh, development as an individual uh, individual contributor as part of one of these squads, and then fifty percent of their time they spend line managing. Uh, the the engineers so say it again like 50 percent they are managing and 50 percent they are actually coding yes yes that's correct i think it would be interesting to get a better understanding what this 50 percent of not coding so in terms of managing means for our listeners out there how 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 does it work in inside babylon health what does it mean managing or leading people and what is kind of the responsibilities there of an engineering manager Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. So, so I guess I can I can describe what this means for myself because for my role, this this takes a hundred percent of my time. I I barely do any coding these days. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I guess the the first priority is to make sure that uh, all of your all of the engineers in the, in the Android team they are they are happy. They don't have any problems, and they are they're looking forward to coming to work to the, uh, every day that 
the, the environment is the one that that fulfills them let's say uh, then i guess just just due to the sheer number of the engineers like 20 or so having one to ones with all of them it uh, it almost fills half my half of my week uh, apart from that there is uh, defining the processes as we are we're expe experiencing this uh, very quick scaling of the company uh, within the last year i believe uh, we've grown from about 400 people to about 1500 so maybe times three times four and then uh, and then we need to make sure that all of the processes for the android team are are set in, in place so that uh, so that this can work efficiently for everyone right uh, so so within the last uh, year we've uh, we've uh, defined a solid release process we're following a release train every two weeks so we we've defined that we've defined uh, support rotation for all of the engineers so that they can so that we can support other functions of the business when when needed but we can also provide support to each other uh, we've um, we've done a lot of work on uh, on defining the processes around onboarding new engineers which uh, is something that I guess is is of very big importance when you're onboarding so many engineers. So I think that last month we hired about 10 engineers and all of these will need to be onboarded uh, within, within the summer. Uh, and at the same time, there is the whole mentoring the engineers and provide, providing them suggestions and directions for their career. And also making sure that I try to push people a bit outside of their comfort zone so that they can develop personally, even even if at times they don't like it because it's it's a bit you know uh, <laughs> uncomfortable, right? By definition. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then then whenever I get some time, I I spend it uh, on on tooling and stuff like that. So CI is a bit of my passion. So I might create a, a node PR here and there, making some tweaks. And uh, I, I engage in high-level discussions with, uh, with the team on, on the technical direction of the project uh, and whether we have like major issues and we need to adopt a new technology and how we would go about doing that. Oh, it sounds like very exciting times uh, or things going on inside Babylon Health. Let's probably then dive into the technical aspects of it. I, I could imagine that managing that amount of new starters could be challenging not only process-wise, but also getting them on track and on speed to developing features. How mm -hmm. does Babylon Health work in general? So we have this squads, and inside those squads with all these cross-functional teams, how do they work? What do they Scrum? Do they Agile, Kanban, Extreme Programming? Is there anything in particular that you could you could name? Mm -hmm. So, so I would say that uh, we we are very open, and then every squad can operate in any way they like. Most of the squads do Scrum, and they do uh, sprints that last for two weeks with the usual planning, uh, grooming sessions, retrospectives, daily stand-ups, and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I'm trying to think. Uh, was there another part from your question? Uh, no, that's it. Um, I was, or like my follow-up question is, how does a how does the Android code looks like in those in those squads? Is there a common 
common architecture? Is there uh, even a monorepo or something like that where everyone commits to? How, how mm-hmm. is that organized? Yeah, so, so overall it's a monorepo. Uh, initially, at some point, uh, we, I should point out that we have a series of SDKs that we provide to our partners so that they can provide the Babylon healthcare services to their, oh, own, yeah. to their own users uh, through their own applications that they built out. And uh, initially, when we were building these SDKs, I think we've, we've had them for about a year and a half now, maybe two years. So when we were building these SDKs, we were debating about moving them to a separate repository, but, but we decided against it. And I think that this was, uh, in retrospective, I think that this was for the best that we kept everything in a, in a monorepo. Uh, uh, albeit like a very multi-module project. I think we have about 50 gradle modules, but yeah, mm-hmm. everything is is uh, in one repository. Uh, there are some discussions now about uh, uh, about creating feature modules, which we're lacking. Uh, so basically uh, we have split our gradle modules more horizontally rather than vertically. Uh, so we have some Gradle modules that, uh, for example, contain the SDKs, which is essentially the use cases and the repositories, but we don't have vertical uh, feature modules, let's say. Uh, so there are some discussions there on, on introducing some over the next few months. Sounds cool. Um, talking about um, this, this kind of vertical, no, sorry, talking about the process, so you mentioned before the scrum meetings and stuff like that. Um, is there anything um, going on regarding uh, other meetings that you would not consider as typical scrum meetings? Or how does a typical look for one of your Android engineers would look like? Uh, again, this varies from squad to squad. I think that some squads are a bit heavier on the meeting side. Some aren't so much. I, I, I would say that you, uh, on average in Babylon, there aren't that many meetings. Uh, at least that's what I I, I hope uh, is the case because uh, a lot of interruptions throughout the day is uh, is a nightmare for uh, for the engineers. Uh, so in terms of the Android team, so syncing with the Android team, the meetings that we have, they are the weekly catch up that we do with the whole team where we raise issues about. Uh, maybe some tool is not working or we want to introduce another one or something in the CI is not working as well and we want to make some changes. So we have a weekly meeting for these type of things. Uh, we have uh, bi-weekly lunch and learn sessions where someone from the team creates a presentation and then we get free food uh, and then we, we, we watch the presentation then we discuss about it. Uh, and we very recently introduced a third one which is a monthly, we call it a monthly documentation hackathon where uh, we meet with the team in one room for an hour and a half and everyone focuses on writing documentation. And uh, interestingly, this has worked uh, extremely well. We just did one a few weeks ago and we're about to have the second one uh, this Friday. Uh, and, And through this means we managed to to initially, I should say that we had all of our documentation on Confluence and we managed to move everything into the code base as markdown files and also uh, keep them like update all the ones that were out of date. Uh, and con- moving forward, uh, we're going we're gonna to continue having these sessions to make sure that everything is up to date as far as the documentation goes. 
Interesting. So is this is are these kind of documentation hackathons meant to catch up where documentation is lacking or to move things from Confluence to readmes in, inside your repository? And follow-up question, I assume that new code that got written should be documented already in that way and there should not be uh, uh, waiting until the next um, documentation hackathon happens. Is that correct? Yes, that's definitely correct. So on your first question, uh, these documentation hackathons initially, uh, so the first uh, one or two are mostly focusing on moving everything across and making sure that there aren't any gaps. And then moving forward, there, all, all the other ones that will come uh, will, will be something like everyone, everyone is assigned a part of the documentation. So let's say five or six uh, markdown readme files. And then as uh, throughout this one and a half hour, they will read them. They will make sure that everything is up to date and then they will make necessary adjustments if, if required. So, so that is one part, but, but we definitely encourage uh, anyone making any changes they, they like uh, into the documentation at any given point in time, uh, even like uh, out of this documentation hackathon. The, the point is that the documentation should always be up to date and reflect our uh, coding conventions and the way we do things. Uh, one thing that, uh, that I want to point out in this is that uh, we are taking things uh, one step ahead and we are planning to open source all of this. Uh, I think that uh, even though maybe not literally everything makes sense for other engineering teams, I think that there are definitely lessons to be learned from our documentation. And we, we are, we are uh, thinking about uh, making everything available within the next couple of months. Mm, awesome. So what, what kind of documentation do you write? Is it a very high-level overview of your SDK or of the specific Gradle module, or is it a really in-deep description of something? Uh, so uh, the, the overall uh, rule of thumb is try not to go into too many details because this is bound to get out of date really quickly. So mm -hmm. uh, there is, there is uh, a sweet spot between writing too much and writing too little. And I think that this is what we're aiming for. Uh, I should point out that even though they are not extremely detailed, and again, this depends on what we're talking about. So maybe, maybe on the architecture, it might get a bit more detailed because it might contain some examples of how to build a, a screen using our architecture. But maybe in some other things like uh, running how to run detect the static analysis tools, maybe the, on that side, it's a bit more uh, brief. Uh, mm -hmm. but, but overall, there's many, there's many topics that we cover and I actually have them in front of me. So I'm just gonna go, there's about maybe 100, 120 pages. So we cover things like how we do authentication, uh, what kind of build types we have, uh, how we persist data, our architecture overall, which is MVI, uh, uh, what is the structure of uh, the application with regards to the Gradle modules? Uh, what are the details around our white label applications? How we do CI, how we build the screen, including all the layers, uh, documentation around onboarding, setting up a new, uh, new starter and the initial tasks that they need to do and how they, the, the channels on Slack that they need to follow and recommendations about how to use Outlook and what kind of tools we use and how to get access to them. Uh, I'm just reading out uh, the, 
the links from mm -hmm. the project. So uh, things around processes, how to add the permission, how to distribute the application, what is our bug classification uh, protocols, uh, what kind of code owners we have in the in the code base and why, uh, how we use Jira, uh, how we go about creating a pull request, what does our release process look like, what does our support rotation look like, what kind of team meetings we have, how does one go about upgrading a library or introducing a new library in the project. Uh, then we have coding conventions, so things around styles and themes and uh, the branch names for Git and how we use colors, mm -hmm. uh, Kotlin conventions, Java conventions, uh, all sorts of things. How we run unit, how we write unit tests and guidelines around those, uh, and there is more. So uh, the tools that we use, security, uh, and then some more specific around uh, around the, our SDKs. So yeah, pl plenty of plenty of stuff in there. Wow, yeah, that sounds really comprehensive and really well documented. Wow, I'm impressed. Is the motivation behind this, uh, or I was wondering. Does it started with all these new joiners to kind of give them a better onboarding, or was there really another another need that I'm mm -hmm. not aware? So there, it, it's twofold. So one is the new joiners here in the UK, but the second one is the new joiners in the US. Uh, so we're expanding uh, to the US. We we got an office in Austin, Texas, and we're going to be building an engineering team there. This the process has already started, so we have a couple of. Uh, of 100 engineers already in Austin. And then communication between the UK and the US is very difficult because of the time zone difference. So there was a, a big drive to document everything and so to make sure that they can be as autonomous as, as they can be. Got it. Cool. So let's dive in some of those aspects that you already mentioned. So the first thing that, or one of the first things that you mentioned is you also uh, document architecture. Which leads me to the question, how does the architecture of your app look like? Uh, so uh, when, when someone that is interested in joining Babylon, they ask me, I tell them the following. I tell them that about 90% uses clean architecture. And then uh, maybe 40 or 50% uses MVP with clean architecture. And then, then the rest uses MVI with clean architecture. We moved to, to MVI maybe about a year ago, and it has been has been working quite well for us. So so moving forward, all the new screens are written in in, in MVI, excuse me. And then we whenever it makes sense, we migrate some old screens from MVP to to MVI as well. Uh, one more thing I should point out is that because we have these SDKs, uh, there is a, there is a very uh, natural separation of, of concerns between the UI and then the business logic because we need to serve the business logic inside the SDKs and then ship that to our partners. So the, the use cases and the networking layer, the repositories and things like that, they, they exist inside the SDKs and then, then the other modules contain only the, the presentation layer. Got it, got it. I was wondering, is this is this like a guideline or is this like a rule that every team has to follow when it comes to architecture and doing MVI with clean architecture? Mm -hmm. So we are, we are in sync with the team. So we, uh, the, the consensus is that we should use the same. Um, I guess this boils down to 
if if we've spent a lot of time and effort and we we figured something that that works then by by definition if if it works for most of the squad it's probably going to work for everyone i mean we are we're very open to to making adjustment adjustments to to our setup to cater for for the needs of all of the squads they were quite inclusive and i would say pragmatic as well but i think that um, when when a concern is raised uh, which i don't believe it has so far but if a concern was raised then we would try to adjust our existing architecture instead of uh, going instead of having uh, multiple squads follow different programming paradigms uh, the problem with that is that uh, consistency is, in my opinion, key in uh, in managing a large Android code base. And uh, if you have multiple ways of doing things, then uh, new starters get confused. And then in some cases, you might have old ways of doing things that are really, really should not be followed. And that, that complicates things even more. Does Does this make sense? Yeah, it does. Absolutely. So I was wondering, do you have a squad that is dedicated to architecture or a team that is spending the entirely like working hours on architecture and those kind of stuff, or let's call it infrastructure or code or whatever you would like to call it? Uh, so at the moment we have, uh, uh, we have a platform squad is what we call it. And then within that squad, there's engineers that do some platformy things. Like maybe they they look at uh, the analytics framework and stuff like that, but they also look at uh, architecture, at tooling, uh, and uh, CI, and the list goes on. I think that uh, we could do a better job with uh, with uh, creating a squad that that only does architecture and tooling and CI and things like that. So there are internally discussions about splitting up this platform squad into two squads, and then one will be the platform and it will deal with things I told you, like the analytics or maybe raising the mean SDK of the application and making changes or, uh, or uh, providing support for the new Android Q, for example, and things like that. But then have a separate dedicated, exp uh, dedicated squad that uh, is, we're, we're looking to name it developer experience that will be looking into all of the the plumbing of of the mm -hmm. of the project got it yeah makes sense i was wondering or coming back to architecture i was wondering why this transition from mvp to mvi happened most of the time we hear like mvi is this hot new thing that everyone should jump on but rarely we talk about why this transition happened or what like what was the pain point that you faced with mvp uh compared to what you get now with mvi do you mind talking a little bit about it or can you share some insights mm -hmm, sure. how this decision has been made? Uh, so it's quite interesting. The, the discussion around moving from MVP to MVI started with with our appointment screen. So we have uh, one of the features of the, of the application is being able to book uh, video consultations and then have them with, with a GP. And then the screen to actually book the appointments uh, contained uh, a lot of uh, custom views, like five or six that would interact with one another and they contained a lot of state. And uh, I built it myself actually. And then after it was done, uh, maybe a few months later, I realized that it was a, a really a really big mess. It was very difficult to understand, to reason about what is happening. 
uh, because of all the, the interdependencies between between these widgets that the screen contained. And then every every widget was was following the MVP paradigm, but there were a lot of callbacks from one to the other. It was it was a bit of a mess. And then then we started discussing about how do we go about modeling this this complex state in a in a way that we can understand it better. And this eventually, after doing a lot of research and uh, having the the architect of the team uh, spending quite a bit of time on this, we we decided to go with MVI, and then we did some uh, proof of concept, uh, small applications, and everyone liked it. And then we proceeded with that. But the interesting fact is that we never got around migrating the first screen, so the appointment screen, to MVI. <laughs> We've migrated so many other screens, but the one that initially started the conversation is still there. We're looking to, to migrate it now over the next couple of months, but yeah, it's still there, still alive. I can create a Jira ticket for it for that you. That would be great. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we, we, we talked a little bit about, I would say, the presentation layer when it comes to like presentation patterns like MVI, but you also mentioned clean architecture in combination with MVI. What do you mean with that? Uh, I guess the whole the whole thing around clean architecture for Babylon came up uh, uh, quite a while ago. I think I was just joining Babylon at the time. So maybe about three years ago, we decided, uh, I believe at the time, we were just making network calls on, we were following MVP, but we were making network calls directly on presenters. And then the presenter started to get very bloated. Uh, so a new engineer that uh, that uh, joined the team at the time uh, suggested that we follow uh, clean architecture and then presented it to the team. And we thought that it would be a good addition. So that so we introduced a couple of layers of abstraction. So we introduced uh, the use cases and then uh, making using request objects and response objects to to send data and re and get data back from these use cases and uh, uh, another layer for our uh, for our networking uh, which we call internally we call gateways but I believe that uh, other teams call them repositories as well uh, so we introduced this mm -hmm. uh, these two layers and then the the usual interfaces uh, between them to make th make sure that uh, everything is uh, is separate, and then you don't have the, uh, you don't have uh, all of the layers talking to all the other layers, uh, and uh, a separate Gradle module for uh, all of our uh, domain objects. Uh, I, I think yeah. that uh, I think that you can hear probably in my voice that uh, I haven't spent uh, I've spent uh, more than the last year not not talking about these things or thinking about these things like clean architecture. So I'm not I'm not as <laughs> able as I used to be to to express what what clean architecture stands for. <laughs> no no no, they did a good job. I think we all understood what you mean. Um, so speaking about these repositories, do you su support like offline or is it an online first application that you built, or is there anything else in uh, between? So unfortunately, we have some restrictions. So we partner with the NHS, the National Health System, here in the UK. And there are some restrictions about storing data on the device. So the application is uh, online first. We only store uh, maybe some very, very small things on shared preferences, but that's it. Uh, 
we could in theory rather easily, I guess, given the abstractions that we have, support uh, some offline uh, functionality, but uh, due to these restrictions, we, we cannot. Got it. So I assume you also have then some security uh, things to watch out while developing your app. Anything in particular that you would like to mention? Uh, yeah, let me think. So as I said, uh, so the one thing is that we don't store anything on the device. Uh, we're using DexGuard, which is the commercial big brother of ProGuard, uh, both for our SDKs and for the applications. Uh, we just recently uh, we decided to implement certificate pinning, uh, but then uh, looking around at uh, certificate pinning, uh, we thought that it wouldn't fit our use cases. There's quite quite a few issues with certificate pinning, and then the the creators of certificate pinning are moving away from certificate pinning into a new thing called certificate transparency and looking around we couldn't find a library that uh, uh, that supported certificate transparency for android so we built out one of our own and we just actually open sourced it maybe a couple of weeks ago so that is now available for everyone to use i i should point out that overall uh uh, Babylon takes security quite seriously, and then there is a, there is a dedicated security team that looks at security overall. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, yeah, one more thing came to mind, which is uh, making sure that uh, even the small piece of information that we store on the device, they're encrypted using the the key store, uh, the the Android key store. Uh, yeah, that, that that's all that comes to mind right now. Yeah, cool. I also assume that a lot of um data of sensitive data is, is stored on the back end and not really part of the clients like the android and the mobile apps for well, sure right? for sure the uh, anything related to pii uh, personal identifiable information is stored only in the back end and then we cannot use them on get requests for example uh, because uh, the parameters of get requests, they might appear in, lo in certain logs, uh, services that provide logs and things like that in the backend, so we don't use them. Uh, and then for sure, we don't, we don't send them to any third party uh, uh, services like our crash reporting service and things like that. Yeah. 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 Got it. So your Android app, does it use any particular library for all this plumping, like maybe something like Rx Java, or how do you handle this asynchronous works that I think would go on in your app some at some point mm -hmm. in some layers? So we use Rx Java quite heavily, although very recently we started some discussions about moving some of this Rx Java for particular layers of the application more into coroutines. And uh, the team was very happy with this, and now we've started the we've started the work. So that will that should keep us busy for the months to come, migrating from RxJava. Not not getting rid of RxJava entirely because it does make sense on the presentation layer for us, but uh, on the in the use cases and the networking layer, we're gonna remove it and then use coroutines instead. Got it. So since you have already mentioned coroutines, I assume that. All new features are written in Kotlin. Is that correct? And if yes, I also assume that the original client started in Java. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's correct. So we started in Java and then we decided to move to Kotlin maybe about a year, a year and a half ago, give or take. And then all the new code is written in Kotlin these days. And then we also try to 
to migrate the old code from Java to Kotlin whenever we get the chance. I would say that uh, about 50% of the code base is written in Kotlin at this time. Do you use any other libraries, for example, Dagger for dependency injection, or do you roll out something homebrew? No, no, we use Dagger for dependency injection. And uh, we hate uh, the annotation processing aspect of Dagger. And uh, we, are, uh, we are looking forward to, well, not looking forward, but we are debating internally about moving uh, to another dependency injection framework. Uh, uh, I, I know that, uh, that recently there has been support for incremental annotation processing uh for uh, for dagger uh, and this I, I guess this i should say that this uh this is because of the build times the impact of the of the build times that annotation processing brings and the fact that you cannot uh, you cannot do incremental compilation if you have annotation processors in the project uh there has been some work uh within the last months so uh, initially uh, Dagger didn't support incremental annotation processor. They they fixed that. And then the Kotlin annotation processor itself didn't support incremental annotation processing. I think that it got fixed in the 1.3.30 Kotlin release. But I think that there is a pending, still a pending issue with us. So we're, I think that we're almost there to be able to to try to to see whether we can have actual incremental builds that don't take uh, a minute or so. Uh, to build, but uh, yeah, it feels it feels a bit annoying. Uh, so we're debating about moving to uh, to coin actually. Uh, mm -hmm. Yep, got it. So speaking about build times, am I right that you s use Gradle as a build system, or do you use anything else like Paco, Bazel, or something else? Uh, we use uh, we use Gradle. Uh, we haven't really discussed about moving to anything else. Although recently, after listening to a podcast uh, uh, where uh, with someone from Uber, I don't remember which podcast it was. I hope it wasn't mm -hmm. you, was it? Mm, I'm not sure. <laughs> I don't <laughs> think so. Uh, it uh, it became very apparent that in order to to use Buck, that you need to have uh, quite a few people. You need to use IntelliJ to start with, and then you need to have a team. Uh, constantly making adjustments to to the build uh, because things get out of sync all the time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so yeah, we've been using Gradle, and then the build times uh, they take uh, give or take they take about three minutes for a clean build, and then maybe a minute, a minute and a half for uh, incremental builds. And I should point out that we managed to get everyone in the team. Uh, the latest and greatest MacBook Pros, so i9s with 32 gigs of RAM, just to make sure that the, the developer experience is as, as good as it can be, really. Yeah. Uh, and we, we've been using Mainframer for, uh, for a long time now. I know that mm -hmm. uh, Artem has written Mainframer, is that the case? Yeah, Artem and Arthur uh, both worked heavily on that project, yeah. Okay. I think they are happy f for the shout-out. Okay, that's good. Yeah, thanks a lot. We've been using it for for more than a year now. It has been working great. We have two separate build servers in the two offices that we have here in London, and we, we really like it. So, yeah. Sounds great. Sounds great. So, one thing we haven't talked about yet is testing. 
So we talked a little bit about architecture, how this all relates together with the build system, probably dependency injection. What about testing? You also mentioned before that you have some comprehensive documentation regarding best practices of testing. So how is, in general, the testing strategy at Babylon Health? Is it unit testing and what exactly do you do or is it something different? Or would you mind explain a bit what is inside its best practices or recommendation uh, documentation regarding testing? Mm -hmm. Sure. Uh, so yeah, we, we do a lot of unit testing and then initially, maybe up to a year ago, we're using uh, JUnit, but then we moved to spec uh, so these days, all of our unit tests, uh, we use spec for them. And then uh, we, apart from unit tests, we, we only do UI tests on top of that. So there is no, we don't really have any sort of integration test, I would say, in that run on the JVM uh, in the project at the moment. Although we are debating a bit around having some some integration tests for our MVI setup where you you pass in some sort of action uh, to to our uh, MVI let's call it state machine or something and then you you just validate that that does something so it might trigger some sort of request or something and then it will update the state and then we're debating about just passing in the action and then asserting that the state uh, returned is correct, although yeah. it's not the case at the moment. So at the moment we have uh, how MVI works for us is that we have our what we call middleware class, which is what uh, receives an action from from the presentation layer, and then that uh, creates that passes in uh, that that essentially calls in a transformer, which will transform this action into into something that is passed to the use cases, some requests, and then that triggers a response, and then that re response goes into our reducers, and then the reducer will uh, will take in the old state and then the outcome of that network request, and then it will uh, produce a new state. So at the moment we have unit tests for each of these layers for the for the middleware, for the transformers, and for the reducers uh, separately. But uh, there is this discussion around uh, around having some more like integration tests for for that uh, setup, and then uh, then we have UI tests. So these are espresso tests that the engineers are writing, and um, at the moment most of these may, we have maybe about uh, 150 of these UI tests, and that covers about 50% of all the of all the test cases that the QA team. Uh, has for the Android application, I should say that we have a one-to-one -one mapping between the test cases that the QA team writes and the UI tests, uh, and then a small part of those tests run on on every on every CI pull request run, uh, while the vast majority mm -hmm. we have the, an automation a QA automation engineer that runs them uh, once they run they run nightly, but the main purpose is for them to run. Uh, before a release as part of the regression testing. Uh, so initially the QA team was writing them, but that doesn't really scale well. So that, so these days the engineers are heavily involved in writing these tests and maintaining them. And then as, as uh, not all of these tests run on every pull request, some of them may, may become a bit uh, out of date and they might need some updating, in which case the, the the QA automation engineer will go ahead and do that. 
but I, I should say that for uh, for the biggest part, it's the engineers these days, or at least we're getting there. It might be 50-50 at the moment. Got it, got it. But unless there is a test case specified by a QA engineer, no Android engineer will write an espresso test, but rather only write unit tests. Is that understanding correct? Uh, give or take. So there might be some very isolated examples where uh, one engineer might want to actually write uh, an espresso test. For example, we very recently wrote a couple of espresso tests that had to do with accessing the key store on the device. So for things like this, and we didn't want to mock it out. So we wanted to actually test some uh, some particular scenarios that involve the key store uh, on multiple devices. And then we wrote some UI tests for those. But uh, you are correct that uh, the engineers will write unit tests. And then uh, uh, for some of the product related work that they're doing, they will have some acceptance criteria with some some test cases that need to be automated as part of that ticket. And then if that's the case, then they will create those UI tests as well. Got it. Okay. So let me try to sum it up and to go full circle. So in your in one of your squads where you do Scrum, uh, where you have sprints that last for two weeks, I as an Android developer would read first the, the, all the documentation and then I know how the architecture works. So I know MVI is a thing clean architecture, use cases, those kind of stuff are there. You use RxJava or coroutines to do some asynchronous calls there. And at the end, I would write uh, mainly unit tests for my work or some espresso tests if it makes sense. And then I, would, I am going to create a pull request. So what happens on pull requests? Do you have some conventions and guidelines how to do, how to review code and is there some automations or what are the automations from your CI pipeline for every pull requests? Um, what are they and what are they mm -hmm. doing? Sure. Uh, so to start off, yes, we have we're using Jenkins. Uh, we're using Jenkins pipeline, so everything, all of our CI setup is Groovy scripts, and I would say that it's a quite an elaborate setup. So we've been working on it for a while. Uh, so when you create a pull request to start off. Uh, what I'm actually writing an article. I was writing an article about this today. The first thing that happens is that at the creation of the pull request, two, two pull request reviewers will be assigned automatically on the PR. So we have this integration with uh, with a tool called pull assigners, I believe. Yeah, pull assigners uh, that uh, automatically randomly assigns people on on PRs uh, based on uh, based on a GitHub team. So you add the, all the reviewers, the PR reviewers in a team, and then that tool will automatically pick two at random and assign them to every PR. Uh, I should say the number is two because you you need at least two reviewers, two approvals for a PR to be merged. Uh, then mm -hmm. apart from that, the, as soon as the PR is created, the, the process, uh, the CI process will begin. And then at that point on CI, we run all of the unit tests, we run some of the UI tests, so maybe some, some core flows, some, some smoke tests, so maybe about 10 of them. And uh, I, should, uh, I should also point out that for our UI tests, uh, there is an option to either mock the backend or to actually speak to the real backend. And for the PRs, we have the backend mocked. So, mm -hmm. so these UI tests, I mean, they are, they are a bit flaky, 
but they are not as flaky as they would have been if they were speaking to a real backend. Oh, so that's interesting. So when you when you run it with a real backend, are they still the same the same UI tests? And if yes, is then my assumption correct that there are actually no verification or assertions inside your UI tests? But it rather sounds like just clicking through the app. Yes, so it is correct. It's clicking through the app. It might have some assertions, but not many. So uh, it just yeah, it. yeah. You, you're correct in that. So moving back to CI. Uh, we run all of our unit tests, some of the UI tests. We run the static analysis tools. And then for static analysis, we're using CheckStyle. For the Java coding style conventions, we use Detect for the Kotlin uh, coding style conventions. And then we have some custom mm -hmm. Detect rules uh, as well. Uh, we are using a third one, which evades me right now. Um, Lint, right? We're using Lint. Uh, and then we also mm -hmm. very recently introduced a new one, which is Arc Unit. I don't know if you've heard of it. Uh, so, no, what's so that? basically, Arc Unit allows you to write uh, unit tests for your architecture. So it allows you to say things like, uh, uh, "I want all of my activity classes to be in a particular module, let's say, uh, to be in a particular directory," or "I want." the the use cases to not be able to access directly the repository implementations i want them to only talk to interfaces uh, or you can say things like uh, i want all of my all of my middleware classes so uh, the class from our mvi setup to not have any imports from third party libraries because uh, because let's say that we have a coding convention where we we always make sure that we wrap third-party dependencies uh, so that we can swap them in and out uh, quite easily. Uh, we can provide a link in the show notes, I guess, but it's it's quite nice. We just very recently introduced it into the project, maybe about uh, a month ago. Yeah, it sounds very interesting. And does it work well for you? Uh, initially, like we had some some issues because it tries to load all of the all of the classes while running these unit tests and like one one limitation is that if you have many classes like we do you need a lot of memory to do that so we had to yeah. increase the memory for our unit tests from 400 megabytes to about two gigabytes to be able to run this tool got it, got uh, it. yeah uh, so then back to back to the ci uh, we we built the sdks initially and then we deploy these SDKs to a Maven repository, a local Maven uh, repository, an artifactory that we have, an artifactory instance. And then we use those SDKs to build the, the applications. I should say that we have the main Babylon application and we also have four white label applications. So we build all of the, these five applications and then we also build the, all of the build types for them. And we have three build types. We have debug, we have QA and we have release. So we build all these 15 applications and uh, we also build the 16th one, which is the, the SDK sample application that we have, which we provide to the consumers of our SDKs and it's in a separate project. We also build that to make sure that it always builds successfully so that uh, uh, we don't break, we don't introduce any breaking changes without, without realizing in the SDKs. Uh, and another one I want to draw your attention to is uh, a, a new tool that uh, one of the one of the engineers in the team, Matt, wrote. It's called Markdown Lint. 
and it allows you to to execute uh, lint rules on markdown files so to make sure that uh, all of the files they follow the same structure and they can be parsed from different rend markdown rendering agency uh, different markdown rendering uh, what's the word engines engines i was going to say agents yeah <laughs> uh, and one the the most interesting rule that this tool executes which uh, which i really really love is a tool that makes is a rule that makes sure that all of the links in the documentation are valid because all of the documentation is in the same directory it can very easily verify these links and make sure that we never that all of all of the links are valid and when someone renames a, a file in the documentation they they also rename all of the links associated to that file so when you oh, navigate sweet. Yeah, yeah, this is quite nice, actually. So when you navigate in the documentation, we try to link everything in together as much as possible. And then there is the CI check that, that always makes sure that all of the links are correct. Otherwise, the build will fail. So are you actually generating some website out of, out of this uh, readme files or markdown files? Not at the moment, not at the moment. But this is probably what we're going to be doing once we open source the whole thing. We're going to generate cool. a small website. Will uh, this markdown lint also be open sourced? Yeah, yeah, this is uh, this is already uh, available as well. So uh, we ah, can add the cool. link. Yeah, yeah, we will add a link to the show notes as well. Cool. Yeah. Uh, so once all of the applications are built, then the next step is to deploy some of them to HockeyUp. HockeyUp uh, is a tool for uh, for our QA team to be able to like easily download the app and uh, play around with it to ensure that uh, everything. Uh, uh, is correct in the app when testing things, and then we also have an integration with the Play Store, so so that we have a, we have a small uh, private alpha group on the Play Store where where the release builds and only the release builds, right? They they get deployed automatically, so that we can easily promote uh, builds from the alpha uh, group into production uh, when mm -hmm. we need to. Uh, so yeah, give or take, uh, this is what we have in uh, this is what we have in CI, and then there are some smaller things like integrations with Jira to update the tickets with uh, with a with a particular PR number and update the tickets with the hockey app link so that they the QA team can easily move from Jira to to hockey app for a particular ticket, and then there, there is some integrations with uh, with Slack to notify people when. Uh, uh, a CI build has failed and the reason behind it or when we do a release and then finally I should say that there is there is a, a separate pipeline for uh, for our SDK releases so building the SDK is verifying correctness and then publishing it to Artifactory uh, so yeah that, that's it give or take yeah cool sounds like a really good pipeline I'm coming back to the continuous deployment that you have in place so this happens like deployment to hockey app happens on every pull request or after the pull request got merged to master and is then master built and deployed uh, like the APK built out of the master branch. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, we do both. Uh, so every pull request deploys something to hockey app to a particular in hockey app they're called buckets. So every pull request will deploy the artifacts for all of the applications into different uh, hockey app buckets and then when we create release branches then every pull request will deploy uh, the application into different 
hockey up buckets because the release builds are different. They are signed with with uh, the with uh, the the keys that allow you to publish the application to production, and then those builds are the only ones that get uh, published into the alpha uh, alpha group in play in the Play Store console as well. Uh, and then when a PR gets merged into develop, then the develop branch is built again, and then again those artifacts are also placed into HockeyUp into separate buckets. So we have a ton of these buckets and artifacts on HockeyUp. <laughs> got it, got it. And when are you releasing a new app? Like when are you promoting an APK from the alpha channel in the Play Store to production? How often do you do that? Uh, so we operate with a release train every two weeks. So every Monday 2 p.m. we take a release branch from develop and then we also sign two release engineers per platform. So uh, two on Android and two on iOS. And uh, these engineers will work towards fixing all the, the bugs that the QA team will, will find. Uh, the, I should say that the QA team, there's two aspects of QA. There is the manual QA. So, and then there is the automated QA where they run all the UI tests that I, I previously mentioned. So these two things happen mm -hmm. in parallel. We, you have the engineers fixing the issues. And uh, as soon as everything is... You mean we're fixing the issues that they are actually um, writing code or are they just delegating to the code owner that something has been broken and must be fixed? Uh, there is a bit of both. So depending on where a particular bug is found, if there is a, an easy to identify owner from another squad, then they will delegate with the exception of that squad being particularly busy because of, I don't know, for some, some reason. In which case they might do it themselves. The, those two assigned Android engineers that that look after the release. Um, uh, otherwise, if there is no easily identifiable owner for a particular bug, uh, maybe there is something in the in the plumbing in the architecture or something. I don't know. Then in that case, they will do it themselves. They will not look around for for owners. And is this what you mentioned before, what you have called uh, support rotation? I think you mentioned that somewhere in, in at the very beginning that you have something like support mm -hmm. rotation. Uh, is that part of support rotation or what is support rotation in general? So uh, we have essentially, we have two different rotations. So one is the rotation with the release engineers. So someone, two people from every platform, they get assigned to help out with the release every two weeks and then they rotate. And then we have a separate support rotation, which is uh, one engineer uh, rotating every two days. And then they provide support for for the Android platform to other other parts of the business. So let's say that someone from, from BI, business analytics, comes in with a question for Android, then they will ask on the Android channel and that support engineer will be responsible for, for answering, investigating and then answering questions from other departments. Uh, there is uh, looking at uh, some, uh, if there is any problems with CI uh, specific to the develop branch, not feature branches, then that support engineer will, is going to have a look. And then there is also the actual SDK support that we have. Uh, so we have uh, partners consuming the SDKs in their applications raising support queries with the first line of support, which is out of the Android team. And then that might trickle down into the Android team, in which case 
the support engineer uh, assigned for that day will have a look at uh, at those uh, at those requests. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely, it does. So speaking about SDK and customer requests, how well, I was always wondering how does companies who offer SDK deal with crashes or do you have something like Crashlytics built in your SDK? So how do you get any meaningful, I don't know, information out of like mm -hmm. how your SDK behaves out of, out of the, out in the it world? It is a bit tricky, I would say. Um, we don't have any, any crash uh, monitoring uh, baked into the SDKs. At the same time, and, and this is something that, uh, that I think we're lacking and uh, I think that we could do a better job with regards to tracking the crashes in the SDKs. Uh, what, what really helps with this is that the SDKs that we build for our partners, we also dog food ourselves as well. So we consume all of these SDKs inside our applications. Our applications are essentially like uh, 50% the presentation layer and then 50% all of the SDKs that, that, we, that we use internally. So then we have a pretty good idea of uh, whether an SDK is working or not, because if it's, if it's not working, then it's going to crash for, for us, for Babylon as well. Uh, but, um, but from time to time, there is a case where something might crash and then, and then that would go through the support mechanism that I, that I just described. So one of our partners will contact us and saying that there is a particular problem and then we will, we will work together with them to make sure it's, it's fixed. Got it. Okay. Yeah, sounds good. What about your app in general, given the security restrictions that you have? Do you use Crashlytics or Firebase Crashlytics or any other like public mm -hmm. available service for crash reporting? Or do you have something that you have written on your own given the security restrictions that you might have? Uh, no, no, we're using Crashlytics actually. Although these days we're debating about moving to someone to something that will give us a bit more control uh, of our, uh, of our uh, data. So one option would be to use, to use Firebase with BigQuery. They recently announced uh, support where you can export all of your data into BigQuery and then you can run custom queries and act based on those queries and things like that. But we also, we are at the moment, we're doing a proof of concept work with uh, the new Relic SDK, which provides something similar out of the box. So you're able to plug it in in a similar way like we do with, uh, with any crash reporting tool like Fabric, and then actually be able to write something that looks like SQL, but it's not quite SQL. It's, um, it's called NRQL, New Relic Query Language or something. So you're able to write uh, these queries to, to create a custom dashboard uh, with all the metrics that you care about. And we're trying it out now as we speak. So for example, you can, you, what, what I want us to get to is uh, to be able to define crash rates for every squad. So instead of having one number for the whole application, that is not really easily actionable. You can have, uh, we have 12 squads, so 12 different crash rates for every squad. And then every squad can have KPIs against those crash rates. So there is a, a very big incentive for those, for those squads to fix their own issues, if that makes sense. Otherwise, everything gets a bit lost in translation. So this is what, this is what, uh, mm -hmm. what we're aiming for. 
And to accommodate this, we very recently we introduced a smart mechanism of defining squad owners for every screen that we write. Uh, every screen in Babylon, in the Babylon Android application, uh, translates to one activity. So we defined squad owners for every activity. And then we pass in this information as, as breadcrumbs into the crash reporting tool. And then using this smart query language, we're able to create all, all this, this uh, uh, squad specific uh, reports, basically. Got it, got it. How do you deal with technical depth since we're talking about bugs and issues like that? How, how do you deal with technical depth in general and balancing that out with feature, feature development or new product changes? How does mm -hmm. it work at Babylon Hub? Uh, so I would say that overall, the, we are, we're very pragmatic about technical depth and we're very engineering driven as well. So there is a lot of push to do things right, to not cut corners and uh, to tackle technical depth as soon as it arises. And for sure, right, there is a lot of technical depth in the Babylon Health application, as there is in any application. And for sure, again, when I say we don't cut corners, this is usually the case. It's not always the case because at the end of the day, this is a business and you need to, you need to deliver on specific timelines and deadlines and things like that. But we always, we always try to go back and make sure we fix things to the best of our abilities. So in that sense, we, we, I, I believe that, that the code base overall is not doing that bad and that, like things are improving and the technical depth is, is moving towards the, the right direction of like going low. Uh, now, in terms of how we, how we manage it, uh, technical depth that relates to product related features. So let's say one of the squads didn't write some tests in order to meet a deadline, then this will be actioned within that squad. And then bigger pieces of technical depth, they would lie with this, with this platform, let's say squad, where you have dedicated engineers prioritizing all of the technical depth uh, and then picking, picking the one that makes sense at the time and then tackling it. So the one that we are currently, the big one that we're currently tackling is the one I mentioned around moving from Mark Sama to to coroutines, and to give you a sense of like the the size of of this effort is we've had a small working group of three or four engineers working for this for a couple of months to nail down the details, and uh, then after that it's been uh, three months is with two resources is give or take. Uh, work, uh, no, I would say part-time, two resources part-time. Uh, moving forward, mm -hmm. I expect this to be another, give or take, another six months of, of having two resources full-time on this to, to do the migration. Uh, but but uh, Babylon Health, even though it's 1,500 employees these days, it's, it's still a startup in a sense. So you might have some projects that come off come out of nowhere and then some adjustments need to be made so but and we're pra pragmatic about that so these things might get paused for a bit and then when it makes sense we might continue right yeah makes sense what about the 10 percent free time of objectives um you have mentioned that i think not during this episode but somewhere offline like we talked before offline and you mentioned this 10 percent free time for objectives mm -hmm. what is it about? Uh, so uh the engineers they spend uh, their part everyone is part of a squad and they spend most of their time uh, within the squad 
but uh, the recommendation is for them not to spend all of their time in the squad to do to do a few more things. So there is about we we try to aim again give or take. We try to aim for about spending about eighty percent of your time within the squad. So that is eight days per sprint because we usually do two weeks sprints. And then about one day per sprint on average is uh, what I told you earlier about the the two support rotations. They average out to be about 10% of your time. And then you have a, a 10% left, which is something for you to to do anything, to do really anything you like with. So usually we, we call them objectives and then we define some. So a line manager along with an engineer we define we define these objectives for the next six months, and the engineer is free to come up with anything they like. So, be it it's usually some sort of improvement in the project, uh, or it might have to do with public speaking or writing, but it can it can go further than that. Like if if one engineer wants to to learn about a new programming language that they've never worked with, uh, Scala, for example, I don't know then I, I would be more than happy for them to spend the time uh, to, to develop personally and professionally by, by looking at a new language. It doesn't need to be uh, tightly associated to the project. So, so the engineers, uh, and again, we, we've, been, we've been doing this for about uh, three or four months now. So we are just starting out and we've, we're seeing varying degrees of success because in some cases some some squads might have some more deadlines some other squads are a bit more relaxed in which case they have more time to work on this but i think that uh, i think that it's a good initiative a good thing to have and we're trying to accommodate this thing as as much as possible two closing questions what would the developer sakis do differently now in retrospective when it comes to coding or architecture or anything i would say an, a regular android developer is doing yeah um so what uh, what are we doing in babylon at the moment that i would probably change if i was to do another project is that the question uh yeah so if you ha would have enough resources and time given all the facts or the all the lessons learned that you have done uh over the last years what would you do differently mm -hmm. uh, so even though like our our build times are not that bad uh, a minute and a half or three minutes I still really don't like them, and I think that I would spend more time. We spend a bit of time, but we don't spend a lot of time. I would spend even more time looking at how to, to improve on these build times. So that's definitely one thing. Uh, another thing that comes to mind is uh, uh, spending a bit more time with our UI test setup. We've spent quite a bit of time, but it's still not where we want it to be. So there are cases where some tests are flaky and things like that. So I would definitely spend a bit more time there. Um, I would overall love to spend more time on open source and uh, having the team do more public speaking and writing. We, we just started out with the initiatives I told you. So the certificate transparency library, and we're looking to open source a library related to our MVI setup within the next couple of months as well. But uh, I think that giving back to the community is very important. And I think that if I had the chance, I would do much more of that. Uh, and also uh, the public speaking that I mentioned, I think that's important as well. Uh, in, terms of, uh, in terms of 
tooling, I would definitely keep the Markdown Lint tool that I mentioned. That thing is awesome, and you should totally check it out. Uh, nothing else comes to mind. Uh, maybe, maybe actually, one thing that does come to mind is the paying a bit more attention into the startup times of the application. At the moment, we don't have any sort of framework to measure those, and we don't really pay attention to to that. I I know that there is this uh, this neat service called NimbleDroid that uh, mm-hmm. that uh, allows you to hook up uh, the application startup monitoring in your CI, and that 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 looks really cool. But we've never really dived into it. So yeah, I would uh, if I had the resources, I would probably do a bit more of that. What is or what are the things that you are really proud of? Uh, it's um, so I'm really proud of. Uh, uh, an integration that I very recently wrote myself. I think I touched on it earlier. So we have this tool called pull assigners that automatically yep. assigns the reviewers to pull requests. But then we had a problem with that. And the problem was that when someone went on holidays, someone needed... Uh, so basically, just to give you some context, this tool operates based on a GitHub team. So let's say that you and me are on this GitHub team it will and then a pull request is created and then there is only one automatically assigned reviewer it will just do a random and it will it will pick me or you to assign it to the pull request but if if let's say that you are assigned and if you're on holiday that tool doesn't have any sort of awareness of that so it might still assign people that are on holiday or maybe they're out sick or something to pull requests uh, which which we found a bit annoying so i wrote a i wrote an, a small tool that basically checks your Slack status and it uh, it checks whether you are marked as on holiday or out sick. And then based on that, it will remove you automatically from that GitHub team so that we don't have this problem anymore. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting because we also have something like that and we were thinking about building also something like that. So okay. <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. I'm, I'm just, I just now finished writing an article about this. I'm going to, whenever I post it, I'll send it to you. It's, uh, it's, awesome. it's not that difficult, actually. It was quite straightforward to do. So I'm definitely proud of that. Uh, I'm proud of the, the Android team. Like we have an amazing team here. They're brilliant people. And even more than that, what I'm really proud of is the culture that we've built within the Android team. So everyone's very friendly. Everyone's super helpful with their colleagues. And they, they, they operate as if they're owners of the code base, as if, as if they own Babylon, which I found really, really, really nice. Yeah, sounds amazing. Yeah, and there is many more things, but yeah, these two came to mind. Last but not least, are you still hiring or are you done with hiring for 2019? Uh, we're still hiring, actually. We hired a ton of people, but we're looking for more. Uh, I think that at the moment there is about five or six vacancies left, but they go they go out really quickly. I told you that last month we hired about nine engineers. I should point out that out of those nine, uh, four of them, give or take, or maybe five, I'm not sure. So four or five of them were remote engineers. So we 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 were hiring remote engineers. We're no longer hiring uh, because this is something new for Babylon and we don't want to all of a sudden go to a team where we have 10 remote people. We might give them a, a really bad experience. So we started out small. And we'll evaluate this as it goes. But yeah, we're, we're definitely looking and we're looking to sponsor visas as well. 
uh, for people to to move here to London and work with uh, with the Android team. Oh, cool, awesome. Um, we will also add a link to the show notes where people could apply in case they are interested in working with you and Babylon Health in general. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. All right, cool. Then let's wrap it up here. Thank you so much, Sakis, for coming on the show. Thanks a lot, Hans. It was very nice. Yeah, and for sharing all the insights. It was really, really interesting. I learned a lot of new cool stuff that I'm eager to try out on my own and with my own team. So thanks for that. that that's good here. Always, uh, always enjoyed when I when I share all of this information to other people and they they find it helpful. Cool. Awesome. Then thanks again, and I'm stopping the recording now. Okay. Thanks. Bye bye.